Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for ruling the world with both truth and grace. And help us to marvel together at the wonders of your love as we open up your holy word. Speak through even me, God, as we gather to experience you. And we pray all these things with great anticipation, for we pray them in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Hey, we moved here about a year ago. We relocated from Southern California to Georgia. Uh, we call this our Georgiaversary. So it's that time of year where our family uprooted from one place to another. And we had not completed, as Pastor Chuck had talked about earlier in the service, we had not completed all of our Christmas shopping. So my first impression of the city of Atlanta was sneaking out of the house with all of the boxes and finding my way over to Lenox Mall the week before Christmas to experience what people in Atlanta are really like. And this is an impression of what uh, I experienced in my first impressions of you as a community. And I remember thinking to myself, I am so glad I moved here because these people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to experience the love and the power. I mean, the parking lot, oh my goodness. There is not a lot of gospel in that parking lot. <laughs> well, hey, I want you to have a little moment of community next to you with a person next to you in the pew. Uh, turn around if you need to and answer this question. Kind of describe a time when you've received a really strange, maybe out of place Christmas present. Ready, set, go. Well, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear after worship some of your stories of some of the strange presents that maybe you've received at Christmas. I'll tell you about uh, one of the ones that I received. It was my first Christmas at, at not being at home. This was the first time of celebrating Christmas uh, with my wife's family. I was not with my family. And first of all, uh, they, they did everything all wrong and backwards. I come from a German family. The German tradition is the open presents on Christmas Eve, not on Christmas Day. So you go to church, you open your presents just as God intended, and you go to sleep. And you can sleep in in the morning, that kind of thing. But no, Kelly's family had this all wrong. So you know, I'm feeling a little lonely for home as I've got my first Christmas away from my family. And then one of the first presents I open up uh, is, is a pair of left-handed scissors, which is odd because I'm not left-handed. But Kelly's mom had given it to me, and I said thank you to Kelly's mom, and set inside, opened up some other presents, and then opened up another present just a few presents later, and it was a left-handed journal. And so I said thank you to Kelly's mom, and set it aside, opened up a few other presents, and then opened up another one that was like a special left-handed writing instrument. And so I finally turned to Kelly's mom, and I said thank you, but why are you giving me all these gifts? And, uh, and she said, because you're left-handed. I said, no, I'm not left-handed, I'm right-handed. And she goes, yes, you are. <laughs> As if arguing with me or being more insistent was gonna change the reality that I'm 
right-handed. And so that was a series of strange presents on that strange first Christmas away from my family. I really did wonder, what have I married into? Like, uh, you know, is this what's going to happen to Kelly after all these, all these years? Well, it's been much better than that, believe me. I should stop talking now. Well, I think if you asked Mary and Joseph, what is the strangest kind of gift that they received at, at Christmas, at that first Christmas, they wouldn't even have to think about it. We've been talking about these three gifts that they've received of gold and frankincense and myrrh and gold, an incredibly expensive, uh, lavish, extravagant, regal gift for, fit for a king and frankincense, a, a gift fit for the temple, a gift that's fit for worship of almighty God, the priestly gift that we talked about last week. And then the one at the top there is the gift of myrrh. This might be the most foreign, the most strange to us, and it certainly would have been the strangest to them. Because myrrh, when you mix it with some aloe or some oils, is meant to be used to prepare a body for a burial. I mean, it's like showing up at a baby shower with a prepaid funeral home gift card. <laughs> Who would do that? Which got me thinking, can you do that today? which is why I love the internet. I actually found a website this week. It's called Funeral Home Gifts, and this is where you can pre-purchase gifts for somebody that maybe you don't love. And, um, and I absolutely love the tagline of the top left-hand corner, Funeral Home Gifts Create a Wow Experience. I mean, I'm telling you, you definitely want to make an impression. Some of you who haven't finished your shopping, maybe this is exactly where you need to go to be able to create that wow Christmas experience for someone. Well, that really was a wow. Gold, frankincense, and now myrrh. It's almost like everything would have stopped. What does this gift mean? It's so strange, so inappropriate so out of place. Well, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 19. We are in the midst of a series where we are looking at the cradle through the lens of the cross. We're looking at the birth of Jesus through the other end of the telescope and being able to begin with the end in mind. We're calling this series Star-Crossed because we're exploring these three gifts which are signposts, but they're also kind of foreshadowing the three confrontations that happened at the end of Jesus' life. When we talk about the gold, the gift for a king, um, there's a confrontation at the end of Jesus' life with Pontius Pilate, the king's representative. And then we talked about last week with the gift of frankincense, how there's this confrontation with the high priest Caiaphas. And now this week with the gift of myrrh, a gift that's only fit for a burial, how we're about to see the confrontation with death itself. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. 
taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been ever laid. Because it was the day of the Jewish preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the living out of his holy word. So two prominent, wealthy, influential people ask for the body of Jesus. This would have been shocking because with most crucifixions, the point was not just killing somebody and killing somebody cruelly, but also to shame that person And so most crucifixions didn't receive a proper burial. And yet, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea put themselves out there and they asked Pilate for the body of Jesus so that it might be cared for. He agrees and so they take the body. You need to know that back in that time, there weren't professional funeral homes. When someone died in your inner circle or a part of your family, you had to handle this yourself no matter who you were. And so they laid Jesus at their table that would have been at their house. Their hands used the mixture of the myrrh, the spices, and the strips of cloth. And what happened is in a very short order, swaddling clothes, became grave clothes for the person of Jesus. We have to back up a little bit and understand a little of what's going on here. Back up a few chapters in the Gospel of John, and you might recall that there's a story about a woman by the name of Mary who anoints Jesus' feet. She does so by breaking open a jar of what is a pound of kind of this substance, this perfume, and we're told that the aroma of it filled the whole house and that Judas Iscariot actually chastises this woman for being incredibly wasteful, that the, the money from that expensive and lavish kind of treatment could have been sold and the money given away to the poor. That was one pound. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds to prepare the body of Jesus. This was an amount that only would have been used for a king. This is Nicodemus, a wealthy man, emptying out his entire life savings. If you rewind even further in the Gospel of John, you recall that in chapter 3 that Nicodemus is the one who slithers towards Jesus at night. He's too embarrassed to be seen with Jesus in the daytime. And so as a rabbi Jewish leader, um, he approaches Jesus and he asks his questions. And then after having his questions answered, he sneaks and slithers away. And we wonder what happened to him. We have no knowledge of him being ever a part of Jesus' ministry or a part of his inner circle. He just seems to watch at a distance. But something has changed now in the death of Jesus. And Nicodemus is all in. 
I need to pause for a moment where I am in this message right now. I want to share with you that within the last week, I I received an email. This was some unsolicited feedback uh, about my preaching. And since we've been at this for about a year, it's probably worth, you know, kind of knowing one another enough to be able to address this. And in this email, I Uh, I was encouraged that, you know, as we've been going through all these fall series with the Apostles' Creed and then the Reformation, and now with this kind of Christmas series, um, this person was saying that there's too much history. It's too much kind of archaeology, too much background. And what they really wanted at this time of year were some feel-good Christmas messages. The first thing you need to know is that I'm not going to back off of the history and helping you to understand what the text really says. Because I believe that every text without a context is just a pretext to be able to say whatever you want. And it's one of the things that is grossly wrong in American Christianity today. That we pick different passages from the Bible, divorce them from their original setting and make them to feel better about ourselves spiritually. But you also need to know that my personality profile, one of the top bullet points on some of those tests that you take, says that Rich is actively motivated by the approval of others. (laughs) He just is. And so when I receive an email like that, it's very hard for me to not personalize it because I want you to enjoy and to experience God's word as we talk about it together. And so I had a little bit of a heavy heart when I went to my devotional that day, having read that email. And I kid you not, after I read that email of wanting more feel-good messages, this is what I read in my devotional from Eugene Peterson. As your pastor and preacher of the gospel, Eugene Peterson says, I stand under the threat of some very solemn warnings that I'm not to say anything that will make you feel better at the cost of cheapening your lives, diverting you from the best that God has for you. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to the preachers of his day and accused them of healing the wounds of his people lightly by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. A peaceful, comfortable message may be an irresponsible message. A prophet and preacher can try to make things easy for people by baptizing the status quo, sanctioning whatever is going on, and making people comfortable by winking at the seriousness of life. Woe to those, thundered the prophet Amos, who were at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. My primary job is not to make you feel good or comfortable. My primary job is to be faithful to God's word. Ultimately, it's not your approval that I'm to seek. I want you to grow up. I want you to learn. I want you to go deep. I want to preach in the kind of way where it makes you want to read more of God's word for yourselves. Kind of reminds me of a time when I was uh, in a doctoral seminar class 
and this doctoral seminar class had about 20 people in it. And the way that my doctoral program was is it was a two-week intensive course. So you would save up all your study leave and vacation time to be able to go out. And from eight to five, all day, every day, you were in a seminar. I mean, you, you did 4,000 pages of reading to show up for the beginning of the class. And you worked, you know, just kind of day and night while you're at the doctoral seminar. And there were 20 of us in this class. And about 10 of us decided that after we're about two-thirds the way through this course that was really heavy and deep, that, that we just needed a break. Like we needed to kind of do something that wasn't heavy and philosophical and thought about God a whole lot. And so we decided to just walk down the street to a movie theater and just pick some sort of silly movie to see together. There were 10, I mean, it's like a beginning of a joke, 10 doctoral students in theology walked to go see a silly movie. And we walked to the theater and we bought a ticket to this particular movie. It's called Talladega Nights. <laughs> And we go into the film, and of course, about a third of the way into the film, there's this scene where Ricky Bobby is offering his prayer to God, and, um, and all of a sudden, he, he starts praying. And you have like a focus group of uh, doctoral students there listening to this, and this is, this is what he says. This is, dear Lord baby Jesus, or as our brothers from the South call you, Jesus. We thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I would take issue with that, by the way. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife, Father Chip, and we hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. Dear tiny infant Jesus, we, and this is where his wife, Carly, interrupts and say, hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. Ricky replies, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace, and when you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, or teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whoever you want. <laughs> and so he continues his prayer, dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant and so cuddly, but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million, woo, love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates, I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious and it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen? And so immediately as the movie's over, we're all like huddled together outside. Half of the doctoral students thought that that was inappropriate and irreverent. The other half of the doctoral students thought it was laugh out loud funny. I won't tell you which one I was. <laughs> but here's the thing. Every single one of us, not a single one of us, I should say, thought it was untrue. That there are a lot of people who only want the Christmas-only version of Jesus. The baby-centered form of Jesus that demands nothing from you, that expects nothing from you, that can fill you with nostalgia and make you feel a particular warmth of God coming near, but the story stops before it gets to the rest of all of what God is doing in history. 
And the problem with all of that is that it it produces half-hearted Christians. The way that Kyle Eidelman describes it is that they're fans of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. They're enthusiastic admirers of Jesus, but they're not devoted disciples of Jesus. And this is what we see with Nicodemus and with Joseph of Arimathea. They're called secret followers of Jesus because they believe in Jesus, but only up to a point. And they follow Jesus, but only up to a point. Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin. That means in the story we explored last week, in the group that was abusive towards Jesus, the Nicodemus was in the room. Did he speak up? Did he put himself out there before Jesus had died? Not a bit. But now that Jesus has died on the cross, something has changed in Nicodemus. Something has transformed Joseph of Arimathea, and they are no longer willing to huddle back in the darkness. They are willing to step out into the light. They put their careers, they put their lives, they risk everything that they have on the line to ask for the body of Jesus. Because now they know. Now they know who he really is. And now they know that what he says is going to come true. Five years ago this last week was the fifth year anniversary of a beautiful town up in the Northeast called Newtown, Connecticut, that experienced the horrible tragedy at the Sandy Hook Elementary School of multiple people being brutally shot and killed. The New York Times reported on that day that there was a teacher in that school, a woman by the name of Mrs. Wexler, who was huddled in her classroom with her young students. The door didn't have a lock on it. They were hiding together with their puffy jackets all pulled together in this little mass. And Mrs. Wexler felt like she ought to say something to the kids to encourage them, even though she didn't know what was really going to happen. Were they too going to become victims? But she felt like that the words that she had were totally inadequate for the situation. And so she began to sing Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. At first she whispered the words, and she sang it a little louder, and the kids joined her. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. Glory stream from heaven afar, heavenly hosts singing alleluia. Silent night, holy night, wondrous star, lend thy light. Over and over again, inviting that little community into the truth of the Christmas reality. Not a lullaby to the baby Jesus, but a ballad of the light that dispels the darkness. 
This is what Sandy Hook looked like later in the town of Newtown. As they gathered together, as they sang the Christmas songs. And I'd like you to contrast this image with the image that I showed you earlier in the message of what many of us are like at Christmas. Striving, what can we get? What can we have? What can we take? A chaos, a busyness. And you contrast that with the solidarity of a community that is pulling together. Hear me in this. Christmas is not a nostalgic throwback. It is an invasion of a death that conquers life and provides life everlasting. That's what Christmas is. And I imagine that for many of you, you come today and you're looking for that feel-good Christmas message. When I want to give you one better than that, I want to give you the firm and certain knowledge of God's goodness towards you, of a revolution that began in a cradle and a little manger but expanded to take on the very worst that humanity could do in the cross into the explosion of God's glorious resurrection. I don't think that Christmas makes any sense in isolation. It only makes sense when we see it through the lens of the cross. They brought a funeral home gift card to a baby shower because this birth was unlike any other birth and it would lead to a death that would unlock the mysteries of eternal life. And let's pray together. What a strange, unexpected gift that was given to Jesus so many years ago. One that I'm sure took the, the air out of the lungs of both Mary and Joseph. What would it all mean? God, forgive us for wanting to stay in the stable. to having a baby-only view of Jesus because it's more comfortable for us. Thank you that you, as a child, were born to die and that you went to the cross for each of our sakes. I pray, God, that we have a faith that stands up to the harsh realities of life and that you will convict us and help us like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea 
to move from being a fan of you to a follower, an enthusiastic admirer to a devoted disciple. Thank you, God, that you are the one who comes to give life. And that it came at a great cost. And like a Nicodemus, we need to be all in. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.